0: Welcome to the Fabulous 413, I'm Khalees Smith.
1: And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, giving nukes what for and Montague, will speak with Sam Lovejoy about the documentary on his tower-toppling actions 50 years ago, as the film will get a showing later this week at the Shea Theater in Great Falls. Full
0: disclosure, Monty.
1: Full disclosure, I'm president of the board of the Shea Theater, the nonprofit community-owned theater owned by the town of Montague. But that is just coincidental for our purposes now.
0: It's a compelling story, and there's a whole film about it, so... And right now, we'll welcome photographer Jesse Frieden to the studio. Jesse Frieden is a queer-identified photographer, author, and educator. He was America's leading fine art dog photographer for the past 15 years and now focuses his attention on elevating the experience of the transgender and gender non-conforming community through portraiture and interviews.
1: His photography is part of over 150 private collections and has been exhibited in galleries nationally. His current award-winning series, Are You OK? addresses the dangers of the current wave of anti-trans legislation sweeping the country in a passionate attempt to erase stigma and elevate the voices of those most affected.
0: Jesse's work has been featured in The New York Times, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, a little-known nonprofit called NPR, and more. I know, weird. I don't know where that is. He's the creator of a viral photography series, The Doggy Gaga Project, as well as three books, the latest of which is Are You OK? Portraits and Stories of Trans Youth Across America.
1: Are You OK? documents the experiences and stories of trans and non-binary youth living in the United States during this time of anti-trans legislation. Flanked by their supportive families, these outspoken and deeply loved youth present their strength to the world in a revolt against the country's attempt to erase them maybe the best place we should start and I'm queuing this up for you Betsy unless I <laughs> click on this in this room let me try this no let's play the trailer from the project what do you want to say to other trans
2: We have always been here and we will always be here. When you don't have substantive policy, you need a culture war. They picked one of the most historically and contemporarily vulnerable and hurt sections of the population to target because... Were the easiest to kick down. Our children deserve everything that every other child deserves in this world, and that safety and love and acceptance and kindness and respect.
1: This project is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Jesse.
3: Yeah, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, you were just
0: in Northampton taking, I assume, the last round, some of the last rounds of these photos. Um, what what ended up coming out to the fore in this last round of photos that you took with people?
3: Yeah, so this last session in Northampton was really the end of three years of driving around the country, uh, photographing about 150 trans and non-binary youth with supportive families. It was really wonderful to get a small grant from the Northampton Arts Council um, to support that session and. To be honest, it was one of my favorite sessions. It, you know, it was a beautiful, perfect day. The light was beautiful and the kids that showed up were honest and present. And the themes that showed up at this Northampton session were the same themes that I've heard across the country, which are trans kids, whether they're 13 or 24, no, even in states like Massachusetts, know that they're at risk. They know that they have family that supports them unconditionally. Their parents know that they need to be active allies, and they're showing up to participate in this archive in order to spread a message of hope and strength. And that started three years ago, and it was present at that last session.
0: Very cool.
1: Jesse Frieden, what's amazing about this project, as you mentioned, is that you go around the country, talking to these trans youth and the the families that surround them and love them, and you're you know you're four one three based and the four one three has a reputation, you know is it fully deserved all the time? Not necessarily, but being a, an open and affirming community a, a lot of the time. But you're going through the heartland, the Midwest, you know whatever, the, all sorts of different places. And, and yet the stories are the same. Are the fears the same? Were the fears of the kids of Northampton the same of, as the fears of the kids in, say, Missouri or other places that you went and spoke and, and, and interviewed these families?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really excellent um, differentiation. When I have photographed in states like Massachusetts or New York or, you know, um, Illinois, places that have larger cities that seem safer, I think that the fears are a little bit less immediate, although it depends on the background of the kid and family. What kind of other layers of marginalization do they face? Because that is going to make their fear more elevated. But I will say, you know, we are in a safer state in Massachusetts, but it does not matter because kids have their eyes open. Um, Are the kids in Texas and Florida more at risk? 100%.
0: Yes but i think that's one of the beautiful things about this project in general like there's a good cross section of people not just across the gender spectrum but across ethnic spectrum as well so one of the things that this gets to look at is the intersectionality of those identities and how it affects them and their like where they are in the world not just as transgender people but like as black people as like api people did you see see those fears, how did you see those fears overlapping in your sessions?
3: Well, that's something I really worked on, I like to say, imperfectly. um, When I started this project, as a white Jewish binary gendered person of trans experience, I had to create a lot of trust with everyone I worked with. But I had to be very clear that I wanted to tell stories that weren't being told, including I didn't want to only photograph upper-middle-class white trans kids. Those stories are incredibly important, but there are other stories to be told. And so, you know, the the audio you played at the top of this interview was from a kid in Miami um, that is not white um, and had some very different concerns and, you know, other more privileged different kids. So I worked really hard, again, imperfectly, but to make sure that I was creating an intersectional lens uh, an intersectional archive of these experiences and when you go on the website when you see this exhibited you can hear the different concerns and fears and level of dangers um, that show up when people have different identities
1: we're speaking with Jesse Frieden a Northampton based right
3: photographer yes sir and
1: uh, and storyteller the new project is are you okay portraits and stories of trans youth across America. And you were making a name for yourself as a fine art photographer, mostly of people and their dogs, uh, which I still think hopefully we'll have a couple minutes to talk about after because it sounds amazing and fun and beautiful and wonderful. Um, but you have also turned your not only your dog photography, but your photography writ large into activism. Was there a moment where that changed? Or is this something that's been a subtext throughout the entirety of your work where you wanted to, to put yourself and others' stories out there to, to uh, enact change?
3: Yeah. You know, after 15 years of focusing on documenting the connection between people and their dogs, which I also did all over the country, I was ready to do personal work. And I needed something extreme to kick me into action. And that was um, the insurrection. That was the Trump presidency that was seeing the beginning of these anti-trans laws start you know, uh, a couple of years ago. But um, I was ready to stop photographing dogs. I had said everything I wanted to say about that. As a person of trans experience, as a Jew, as someone who understands annihilation, I was angry. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the lease for my studio was up. <laughs> and the universe was saying, just jump in and, and make this project. And it just came together really quickly.
0: Very cool. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk with you more about this project because it's really fascinating and it's really, really beautiful. So coming up in just a few, we'll have more with photographer Jesse Frieden. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
4: The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded
3: by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast solar.com. One day I'll
0: grow up. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We're here with photographer Jesse Frieden, whose latest project is Are You OK?, which takes a portraitive look at transgender and gender nonconforming youth and their families that support them.
1: It's a Northampton-based photography project as well as across the country. Let's hear another clip from the interview portion of this project, which I think is a very important aspect of the storytelling. We'll hear from Jesse, who's 17, along with his mom.
2: Looking back, I can understand how some parents may be hesitant for their kids to be educated. I know that she still feels the same way today would have been helpful for her to be exposed to different genders so that uh, she could feel more connected. She's been a little girl ever since I can remember, but it it was not as open as it is today. I think the laws are sort of just making me a little scared for the future. It's already hard enough, but it's about to become harder. Parents to be more informed one way or the other so they can make decisions to help their children. That's what I've seen. Like, she's so happy. But this is the best life that we can give her.
1: It's really powerful to see these uh, portraits of these trans youth and the families that surround them. As opposed to just trans youth telling their own stories, I think it's important to show that network. You are a photographer, Jesse, what made you decide you wanted to put the audio and uh, some and sometimes video visual version of this uh, as part of the project?
3: Yeah, you know, I actually when I first started this project, I did not think that I was going to use the audio. Um, I am not an audio engineer. Uh, I I did a, a scrappy job with the audio, but I wanted to just simply record the interviews which I've done for the two other books that I have made and then transcribe them and ma- turn them into stories but I realized that hearing the kids and parents voices is such a powerful tool and creating a three-dimensional portrait of this community under attack hearing their young voices hearing the passion and concern in their parents voices um, and and pairing those two things I think creates a really um, Multi-dimensional interactive exhibit, website, you know, et cetera, experience.
0: I've, especially in light of some of your other projects and thinking of um, When Dogs Heal, like the idea of... This doesn't seem as much of a shift to me. This seems like an evolution of portraiture of chosen family because sometimes your family has to choose you actively and that is a bit of what you're showing. And I think in no larger point does that come across than in the portrait of Noel, who's not in the picture? Um, Can we talk about that one specifically? Because I thought that picture in particular was extremely telling and important.
3: Yeah, Yeah, that's the portrait of the empty chair. Uh, When I share that in speaking engagements and exhibits, that's what really stops the room. Um, I've actually just uh, printed that, it will be part of this upcoming exhibit um, that opens March 1st at the Vermont Center of Photography in Brattleboro. That I I knew that at some point in this three-year project, that I would have an empty chair. There were, there was at least one, maybe two kids who had signed up for sessions. And before they got to meet me, they took their lives. This is what is at stake. Right now, that people don't understand. Thankfully, you know, that, that family, that daughter, um, she was committed to uh, the psychiatric ward for suicidal ideation right before our session. And she had spoken to her mom, and her mom asked her if she still wanted to show up. And she was like, Yes, this is so important to show up and show people what happens when, when you don't support your kid, what is at risk. And, uh, at, you know, it's a very difficult image, and it's really important. I think a, a powerful tool to show people that trans lives are at risk in an extreme way.
1: We're speaking with the Northampton-based photographer Jesse Frieden, whose new project—it's got audio, it's got video, it's a book. It's called "Are You Okay? Portraits and Stories." Of Trans youth across America. You also focus on trans youth of different ages, and I think there's been a lot of chatter in the public discourse about um, how young is too young to be talking to your kids about these sort of issues? How young is too young to be talking to a kid who identifies as trans about what that might mean for them specifically? And I think your project does a great job of of highlighting kids of all ages. I want to play another clip now from the project uh, with eight-year-old Ella. Uh, and their mom.
5: So when I was younger, and I first, um, trans, um, my grandma didn't comprehend it the way that it was meant. I would do my nails, and she would say, "Boys don't do their nails." She just had to learn. And so, mommy and daddy, what do you remember? What mommy and daddy did? We sit down, and we had a big long talk with her and just explained everything and and told her that she, you know she doesn't get to say things like that to you because you're a child. We just need to be supportive of you. And you know, and see where things where where your life leads you because we only get one life. And by golly, we're going to be happy no matter what.
1: <laughs> I'm imagining that it hasn't been easy for all the parents that you spoke to as part of this project to accept their children in the way that they are at least right away. I'm also imagining that people have read this book or seen this project that um, may be in that similar situation themselves. What is the feedback you hear, Jesse, when, when they're hearing other people's stories of acceptance in, a, in an attempt to understand their own children better?
3: You know, I'm not a parent, and I, I, I can't speak from a parent's point of view, but I have been where these children have been. And I did not have the uh, privilege of being supported as a young child. I know what happens when trans kids aren't supported. I've lost friends. Every one of these trans kids ha- you know, is experiencing such psychic distress. For me, the only thing that I can say is that this project is about what happens when you support a trans kid and that means that that trans kid has a slightly better chance of surviving and living a full life and that's the only sort of parental discussion that i can speak to
1: well i could give you a little i am a parent Uh, (laughs) i have three kids and i'm you know a straight cis white dude from the Boston area. And, you know, when my kids very young started to, they were clearly queer, especially my oldest. Um, it was the stories of of others that made it, you know, it, it made it okay. Hearing these stories makes it okay. Seeing that it's okay to accept your kid the way they are, even if you grew up in a, in a setting that, like the grandmother that Ella describes there, where it says it's not okay for you to paint your fingernails. You know, when you when these stories go out there and you realize it's okay, it really does have a major impact as a parent. So, even if you're not getting the feedback, I will tell you as a parent, I'm sure there are people that are going to come across this project as parents. And it will make them at least pause and understand that we do only have this one life and we want people to be happy. And who who wouldn't want their child to be happy in the best of circumstances?
3: Right. Uh, that, that is... Monty, the feedback that I get, um, it's a hard question to, to answer sometimes, but I have countless parents that either I photographed people that have met me at exhibits or speaking engagements who say, thank you for telling my story because my kid doesn't want to be public, because I want to show my grandparents why I'm loving my kid, because my teachers need to know why we're loving our kid. It, storytelling is an incredibly powerful tool, and that's why I use it. So, Do you get
0: people who aren't necessarily parents but maybe have other transgender youth in their life coming to your shows and reacting in similar ways you have on your site like some lesson plans and like like talking points and ways to to converse with this did that come out of like other people in in orbit of of trans youth coming to you for these exhibits and being like so what do I I want to support I'm not directly related to this person what do I do now how do I how do I preach the gospel of maybe just accepting folks for being people and we're all here and okay?
3: That's what we're here to do. That's what, (laughs) you know, I I am saying, you know, I'm here to put this work to work. I have made other projects and books and exhibits that are a little bit more static and this is immediate. And I knew that this would be a different kind of project that wouldn't just go into a gallery. I wanted to make a book that was accessible The volume one is out, it's easy to buy, it's as affordable as possible, it's digestible to a wide audience. I have educational pop-up exhibit that goes to schools and conferences where I do speak so that this can teach people through storytelling what's happening to our community. Um, I want this to create change. This was, you know, for me, this is social activism and that was my priority. And that's how I started doing these speaking engagements and offering programming.
0: Have some of the subjects of your your portraiture come to the galleries where it's been displayed? How do they react to seeing themselves and having other people see them in situations like this where they're safe and cared for?
3: Yeah, that is um, <clears throat> that is what uh, just wrecked me recently. Um, I, was, I had the honor of being a keynote speaker for the first event conference, which is a big trans conference in Boston every year. And they invited me to um, sort of bring together three families from Massachusetts that I had photographed over the years. I photographed her a few times. And I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, And there were three wonderful kids ranging from, you know, 13 to 24 or something, and their parents. And they were so moved. You know, I only have 30 minutes with these families, so I, I keep up with a lot of them through social media. But I had never had a kid look at me in the, in the eyes and say, thank you. You know, I'm here because of you, and this project has changed my life. And that is the feedback that I just keep getting over and over and over from these families. I never expected that, and it brings me so much joy and breaks my heart at the same time.
0: Almost like representation matters all of the time, always. That's right.
3: I'm a broken record. (laughs) Say it. Keep saying it. I'm here. (laughs) Jesse
1: Fraden is a photographer from Northampton whose new project, Are You OK? Volume 1, is a book about parents loving their trans kids. And you did mention that a lot of the reason that instigated this is the anti-trans legislation that has been moving across the country. Uh, I'd like to play another clip, if you don't mind. And this is uh, the 8-year-old Ella's mom talking about some of the fears that, that she has as a mom.
5: It's scary. You know, because I, I mean, we know who Ella is. And if Ella is forced to remain male, that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's devastating to think what it will do to her. Ella's gotten to the point now where she's so comfortable. Well, this year she came out to her whole second grade class and it was wonderful. And her teacher immediately called me and said, okay. Molly, this is what Ella just said. What can I do to support your child? You know, Ellen knows who she is. She's so confident. I don't want to ever see that break.
1: And I think that was a, an aha moment for me as a parent with my you know queer kids, knowing how I went through school and how bullies work, that they would have broken my oldest son's spirit, perhaps. And I, I couldn't mm-hmm. bear that as a parent. So that one really particularly you know, struck me, Ella's mom there. I'm curious, Jesse, how did you find these trans youth and their families willing to be so public about this in areas that aren't necessarily uh, as well known for being open and accepting?
3: Yeah, there was, um, I I will say that 90% of the work was me at my computer um, doing a lot of outreach. There's an incredible amount of trust building that I bring to any portraiture that I do, but it's certainly this project, so it, it required, You know, I did multiple rounds of of road trips throughout the country. And I would research, okay, you know, where in Tennessee is there an affirming LGBTQ youth group? Is there a PFLAG? Is there a queer center? Where in Florida? Where in Wisconsin? And I would just do an incredible amount of research. I would cold call groups. I would send emails. I would have many, many conversations and Zoom calls with group coordinators and parents so that they could trust me. And I would ask them, you know, once they trusted me, to share my information. Um, And families just started signing up. And there was multiple emails that would go between me and the families about the pros and cons of getting involved in a public project, how the work was going to be used, who I was, why I was doing the work. So that by the time the kids showed up, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they were here to create social change and they were excited and ready, and very aware, and educated, and um, I hope that comes through. I think that it does. Sure uh, does. In similar fashion, how do you
0: choose, you have a lot of portraits in this series, how do you choose what goes to which particular gallery, like what is different from what's showing in Vermont for this particular show, as opposed to what you brought to Boston, or what you've brought to, to Colorado, like what changes, and what do you? how do you shape that? for the locale that you're going to
3: yeah it's a great question you know curating a group of images is really one of my favorite parts of being a photographer because it's there's so many there's immense an immense amount of creative choices that go into projects like this when there's such a large body of work but um it it, it really depends on on the gallery so for instance right now the pop-up exhibit which is a very out-of-the-box non-traditional interactive educational exhibit is at the ART at Harvard, and that is meant to be accessible to kids and also adults. And so I I make it a little bit more, almost bite-sized. The traditional gallery exhibit, which as a photographer is what brings me the most joy, (laughs) um, that's what's going to the VCP in Brattleboro, and that's, gosh, there's a lot of pieces there. I include QR codes. Instead of having the text next to each portrait. I have a QR code so people can bring their phones and bring their headphones um, and, and hear these two-minute audio clips, so it's really interactive. And I want to bring the viewer through an emotional roller coaster um, and fill them with hope and also educate them.
1: Before we let you go, uh, Jesse, I want to play two quick more clips um you did mention that you didn't want to just highlight you know trans white kids from northampton you wanted to go across the country and get a whole variety of folks speaking out and this is a clip from a 20 year old uh named relic and his mom People meet me, they don't see me as a trans guy, so I don't tell them I'm trans unless it's like on a need-to-know basis. Like, you don't need to know that. Should you ask me who I am, I'm a man, I'm a black man, that's all you need to know. When it comes to stuff like this, people should just mind their business.
0: We're not bothering nobody doing what, you know, we living life we want to live, doing what
4: we want to do.
1: I also feel a greater responsibility. So
2: for us to be able to advocate on behalf of the community that Raleigh represents racially and through his experience living as a transgender man,
1: um, you know, there's definitely an element of uh,
0: protectiveness that comes out that we, I don't think we felt before.
1: Ralik also left us with a, a tiny bit of wisdom that I think we could all, all take to heart here for our final little clip. Be you, because whether you die today or 20 years from now, whenever you go, you want to know that you was happy when you was here. And that's really the takeaway from this whole project, in my opinion. It's It's beautiful. Portraits and stories of trans youth across america with northampton-based photographer and documentarian whether you want to admit it or not i think
0: you must be now with all the audio and video and putting that out there i, <laughs> I mean bad. all of your all of your projects are, are documentary in nature so this one is a little more like x has a little extra life because of all the things happening now and because they're so young they have so much life ahead of them mm-hmm. when does that brattleboro exhibit open
3: it opens uh, March 1st is the opening event. It's a First Friday event, and there will be an artist talk on the 28th.
0: Okay,
1: technically outside the 413 purview, but we'll allow it because <laughs> you are from Northampton. This is a, a <laughs> wonderful and important project, and you can check out all of uh, the, where, where to get the book and to support the project and see the photographs and hear the interviews by going to ruokportraits.com. Jesse Fraden from Northampton, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's our honor.
1: Yes, for sure.
3: Up next, the 50th
1: anniversary of One Town. One man's effort to curtail nuclear power plants in Franklin County will check in with Sam Lovejoy and hear about the showing of the documentary Lovejoy's Nuclear War, which is based on that feat of man and gravity. You're listening to The Fabulous 413
0: on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And
1: I'm Monty Belmonte. February 22nd, 1974. It was a dark and frosty night. And Sam Lovejoy brought down the 500-foot meteorological tower erected by Northeast Utilities on the Montague Plains in Montague and ignited a national Movement against the construction of nuclear reactors and the use of atomic power. It was one of the earliest major acts of civil disobedience against atomic power.
0: 50 years to the day later, and not far from the Montague Plains, 7 p.m. at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls, a screening of Lovejoy's Nuclear War. The Montague Marching Band will lead off the evening, followed by a screening of the award winning documentary. Director Dan Keller will be there for QA at the end of the evening.
1: Lovejoy's Nuclear War will be followed by a screening. Screening of *The Tower*, a short-form documentary that recaptures the trial in its original setting, the historic Greenfield Courthouse. Produced, directed, and edited by Scott David Hancock, and starring none other than the legendary Sam Lovejoy, who joins us now. Thank you for coming, Sam.
0: <laughs> there's there's miming of of violins happening. <laughs> the world's tiniest violin, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> thank you
4: for coming sam well you're more than welcome you know
1: uh so we've known each other for many years now um and have moved in some uh well i don't know we don't need to fully disclose every little thing here but let's talk <laughs> you you are uh, continue to be an activist and you continue to fight and we'll hear some of uh, about that a little bit later but for those who aren't familiar with this story of you toppling the towers on the Montague Plains. Tell us um, the beginnings with you and the Montague Farm.
4: Well, I moved to a commune on Chestnut Hill in Montague in 1969, and uh, it was the old Liberation News Service commune, very political, uh, very active. And it was sort of, at that moment, it was a sort of uh, move back to the country, get out of the cities, uh, and, after a couple years of living there, we had sort of gotten a farm organized and I was sort of wondering what I was going to do next <laughs> and uh, so the the nuke and the tower sort of came to us we didn 't go hunting it down. Yeah well yes you did (laughs) I
0: I would also argue that that's kind of the caveat behind like all of these further things happening the documentary the short film like the trial all of this happens because you kind of went after but like not in a not in a hunting sort of way just they came to you and they were available for this action
4: yeah well the the, going through the anti-war movement and you know sort of little nibbles of the civil rights movement, but basically anti-war and learning how to research, look backwards at things, look at corporations, know where to look, uh, being a skeptic. Plus, I was a physics and math major uh, in college, which sort of helped a little bit with the, the nuclear question. But in reality... Uh, I would say 98% of the people in America or in Franklin County, Montague, whatever, had no idea what a nuclear plant was. <laughs> it was basically uh, a technical thing, a machine that got built, and it needed cooling water, and it made lots of electricity, and, of course, everybody got their tax bills lowered. So that, that, was, that was really kind of like, uh, why not, you know? <laughs> and, and, I mean, Nixon gave a speech Uh, you know, a um, State of the Union speech in the early 70s, and he said he was going to build a 1,000 nuclear plants by the year 2000. And I remember sitting there looking at it and saying, you couldn't do it even if you had all the money in the world. (laughs) But, you know, we're not talking insanity. There were, I mean, anyway. So there there were going to be two, right, on the Montague Plains? Is
1: that what was proposed?
4: Yeah, two two nuclear plants. Uh, They were going to have... Seven percent of the Connecticut River was going to be turned into steam. I mean, if you go over the river and think seven percent, maybe you can't envision it. But let me tell you, that is unbelievable amount of water. (laughs) And they're going to be pumped into cooling towers bigger than the Prudential Center. Why two? What do they need two for? Because it's better than one, right? <laughs> you make you make twice as much money. I mean, uh, I mean, come on. Westinghouse was really happy. I mean, I. I, I can't. Uh, <laughs> so he, you are an awful capitalist. I'm just gonna tell you. You never thought this through.
0: I have not received a better compliment in a minute. So thank you, Sam Lovejoy.
1: And we are speaking with the legendary Sam Lovejoy. Oh, so uh, again, Northeast Utilities puts up a 500 foot meteorological tower that is, you know, I'm sure very visible to a lot of the town's folks in Montague where you're now an organic farmer living on a commune. Tell us about um, how a a four-year-old named Sequoia uh, pushed you towards action.
4: Oh, she told me to do it. No. (laughs) Wow. No, 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 no. (laughs) He was exonerated. I I taught her.
1: The the trial's over. No double
4: jeopardy. I I taught her. I taught her. (laughs) how to adjust the screen door. And she said, oh, this is just a big screen door problem. No. Uh, <laughs> I was sort of in love with Sequoia. I couldn't resist, you know. And she was a four-year-old little girl living at the farm. And uh, when you come to think of it, you know, we're sort of adults. I'd gotten out of college. We could sort of control our own lives, I guess, to some extent. But little kids have no control. And so whenever I would look at Sequoia, it would be like, Nuclear power? I don't think so. Um, And what's funny, one thing I just got to say, when we started organizing for the 50th anniversary, the first comment was, God, can you believe it's 50 years? And, you know, that sort of sinks in. But the next comment people would make to me was, I am amazed they were going to put a nuclear plant in this valley. Yeah, and I would never have moved to the valley. <laughs> this valley would have been destroyed. It would have been ugly. <laughs> this is unbelievable. I, it, it was like everybody agrees this was insanity. Two Prudential-sized towers. Is that what you
1: was gonna was gonna be proposed there? Well,
4: six hundred feet tall, three hundred and fifty feet at the base, which is uh. Prudential Center, you yeah. know, two wow, of them.
1: That is unbelievable. So that puts it in perspective for you. So now they put up a meteorological tower. It's 500 feet tall. Yeah, Sequoia influences your decision-making process It's here. unbelievable. And on the night of February 22nd, almost 50 years ago, February 22nd at the Shea, we will recount this uh, via the means of the documentary, you walk to the tower in the night and do what?
4: I took a crowbar and stuck it in the... Uh turnbuckles which are those little guys that you know people see them on a screen door Mm -hmm. except these were three or four feet long I just put a crowbar in the middle of it I'd looked at them before they didn't have any security there at all no fences no wires (laughs) no little you know cotter pins holding it together no locks no nothing so I just with a crowbar undid the guy wire the turnbuckle and uh It took three of them, or three of the seven guy wires that held up the tower, and the uh, third one was sort of the magic guy, and when it (laughs) let go, the tower kind of crumbled. It was really a shame. I (laughs) felt so bad for the tower. And uh, every 50 feet there was a red light, and every 100 feet there was a white light, a strobe light. So everybody at night, this thing stuck out like you would not believe. You were having a party. Yeah. (laughs) And and I was sort of like a cherry tree, can't tell a lie. (laughs) You know, all those things rolled into one. and And So then it fell down, and I walked along the power lines, which run across the Montague Plains, out to the road. And uh, the cops came out of their sleeping emporium at the uh, athletic club. Uh, uh they, they literally, uh, they pulled up next to me and they said, hi, uh, what's your name? I said, Sam Lovejoy. I said, where are you going? I said, the police station. He said, oh, well, we're going down there. Just jump in the back. It, there were no questions, no nothing, right? So they drive me to the police station. And for people who have never been in a cruiser, <clears throat> you can't get out of the back seat because there's no handles. Right. So most people don't know that. Anyway, so the, the poor passenger cop was quite asleep. So the driver punches him and, you know, wakes him up, and the guy gets out and opens the door for me. I felt like I was on a date. You know what <laughs> I mean? I was like, <laughs> what is this? You know, and he lets me out, and then I go in the police station, and um, the desk sergeant was sitting there, and he looked at me and said, Sam, what's up? And I said, well, I was just out for a walk, and I didn't see the tower. That was my euphemism. I didn't say the <laughs> lights are <laughs> out. So I just didn't see the tower. So... He says, "Oh dear!" He says, i are going to have to call the, you know, the cruiser." And hey, I got a report. The lights are out on the crew, you know, on the towers. No, no, we are just there. So I <laughs> said, "No, I don't think so." Giving him the no-no, and he said, "Well, why don't you go check?" And uh, they radioed in and said there was a terrible tangle of metal up there, and uh, it's no good. So then I handed. the... Uh, death sergeant, a four-page written statement, taking full responsibility for wiping out the tower. And uh, he sat there. He sort of knew me. And he read a sentence, and then he'd look at me, and then he'd read another sentence, and he'd look at me. And after a couple pages of this, he said, you know, I think I'm going to have to arrest you. (laughs)
3: that's a good place for us to take a quick break because
1: what happens at the trial is equally as uh, wacky wild zany it's even star-studded as well as a, a no nukes concert that sam lovejoy is involved with at madison square garden that happens just a few years later we're speaking with sam lovejoy who is the featured Participant in Lovejoy's Nuclear War, a documentary that will screen on the 50th anniversary of Sam toppling the towers this Thursday evening at the Shea Theater in Great Falls.
0: I mean, it is one of the most intrinsically Western mass stories oh, ever. Totally. <laughs> You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Klee Smith. We're here with Sam Lovejoy, who is a legendary anti-nuclear activist in the 413. Fifty years ago, fifty years and two days from now, uh, he he toppled a (laughs) 500-foot meteorological tower on the Montague Plains, which essentially stopped two large-scale nuclear power plants from coming there. He turned himself into the police immediately thereafter. But... Your plea and your trial, Sam,
4: despite
0: the manifesto,
1: was what?
4: Uh, I was not guilty. Absolutely not guilty, I believe, Uh, is the quote. uh, I'm sorry, yes. It was (laughs) absolutely not guilty. I I wanted to be very, very clear. Uh, I did knock over the tower. I admitted that to the jury, and I said it's not a crime. And then there was uh, eight or nine days of trial talking about civil disobedience and all the problems of nuclear power. And I had Howard Zinn there, Professor Howard Zinn, a wonderful guy from uh, BU, Boston, uh, who talked about the history of civil disobedience.
1: Well, Let me stop you right there because I've got a clip from the movie of Howard Zinn talking about about you and civil disobedience as part of this uh, documentary, Lovejoy's Nuclear War.
5: Uh, These governmental institutions have not been very very adequate to protect people, and from time to time when grievances became too deep, groups of people had to go outside the machinery of government, had to break the law, had to commit civil disobedience in order to dramatize something that was happening. Uh, This was done by the labor movement, it was done by black people at various points in our history, and before the Civil War and the Underground Railroad, in recent years in the Civil Rights Movement. It's been done by women in protesting against inequality. And it seemed to me that after the most recent acts of civil disobedience, that is against the Vietnam War, maybe the time is right now for people to look closer to home uh, at the dangers to our lives
1: posed by corporate control of our lives. That is Howard Zinn, who testified on behalf of Sam Lovejoy in this trial. You also had Dr. John Goffman, who was a member of the Manhattan Project. But we have a listener named Leslie Kellogg who says, can you ask Sam about Elizabeth and Stanley Bell? They testified on his behalf at the trial.
4: (laughs) So they lived in Gill, and um, Stanley Bell was a constable, uh, a sort of junior deputy sheriff. And I'd actually met Stanley because he came to the farm a year or two before to arrest me for not uh, paying a a registry tax or something. So we pulled together all the money in nickels and dimes and dollars, and we gave it to him. And he was totally a sweet guy. And uh, both he and Betty Bell, they were in their 80s at the time, uh, were both opponents of the Montague nuclear plant. And it, it was just fun to have a broad section, cross section of the community old people, young people, you know, every kind of, you know, employment. You, you wouldn't believe the number of people who were against the plant. And the people who owned property and wanted a tax break and the selectmen and, you know, people that don't have a lot of brains at the moment got, got heavily involved with promoting the nuclear plant. But 50% of the valley, by November of 74, we did a petition on the state senate ballot and forty-seven and a half percent of the people that voted—this is in less than a year of education—voted against the nuke. And two years later, uh, you know, the the results were like sixty or seventy percent. I mean, you know, it was ridiculous.
0: And then there's the concert.
1: Yeah in 1979 tell us about the no nukes concert and your involvement in madison square garden and you actually brought me a poster from the concert which is i have in the studio with us uh tell us about this concert and that that continuing education about nuclear power
4: well uh, for people that were in you know familiar with you know movement projects in general the anti-war movement tried to raise money through uh concerts among other things and uh I just had this idea that I should try to see if it was possible to put together uh, a concert. And I met a guy named Tom Campbell who did uh, concert production in California, and he was friends of Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt. And uh, sort of working with Tom, I ended up meeting uh, Jackson and uh, Bonnie, uh, John Hall, from Orleans, and uh, you know the Doobie Brothers were uh, environmentally conscious, et cetera, and it just grew from one concert in Madison Square Garden to two, to four, and then to five, <laughs> and we persuaded uh, Bruce Springsteen to do the first uh, uh, sort of benefit concert that involved with in an issue. And, you know, I had to meet with his producer and explain to him why we were anti-nuke. And after a while and a few shots of gin, we had a wonderful—he <laughs> he agreed to sign up. And we had an incredible lineup. And uh we gave away uh, well over a million dollars. I learned a lot about uh, how crazy that life is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we did the record and we did a movie. And I learned how that game got played because— The concert was in September of 79. The film was finished in July of 1980. And the the magic uh, mindless president, uh, Ronald Reagan, came to power and he was Hollywood incarnate. And so Warner Brothers, who was supposed to distribute the film with a lot of energy, basically decided that they, you know, things had changed. And so they did not promote the film. Well, luckily we have the internet now, and it's very widely available. As is the
1: album, and all the people that you mentioned—Bonnie Ray and Bruce Springsteen and the Doobie Brothers—all Jackson Brown—all appear on this album. And this—this this is not the documentary you're going to see on Thursday night at the Shea. Although maybe we should do another screening of that one on that anniversary. Lovejoy's Nuclear War is that movie. We have just a couple minutes left. Sam Lovejoy, has your opinion on nuclear power changed at all? There is this kind of resurgent environmentalist quote unquote, look at why why we might want to turn to nuclear power in light of how much uh, greenhouse gas we have been emitting. Has your opinion on nuclear
4: power changed in these 50 years? No, not in the least. So here's the deal. (laughs) These are people who believe in climate change as a problem, and I agree with them. Their solutions have to do with replacing uh, the power they think uh, is polluting To nuclear. Well, they just built a nuclear plant in Georgia. It just started. It's the first plant in over 30 years to get built. It cost $20 billion. Uh The federal government put up $6 billion to bail it out. They still don't have a way to uh, store uh, radioactive waste. These are the most expensive, crazy, Ways to produce electricity the world's ever invented, and the people that are changing their tune, I just think that they're sort of mindlessly looking for a solution that doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's if they took 20 billion dollars in the south and put up solar panels, they wouldn't need the nuclear plant. So you know, no, I haven't changed my mind. If they built the tower right now in Montague and said they were going to build a plant. Uh and the and the situation was the same, I knocked the tower over again. <laughs> <laughs> Sam loved joy. Uh,
1: it has been a joy speaking with you. And if you want to hear how the trial ended, because we did not get to that part of the story, I guess you're going to have to go see the documentary on Thursday night at oh, the Sherry. Yes. But uh, yeah, as we mentioned, some high profile people featured in this documentary, featured in that trial, including uh, Howard Zinn, the expert there on civil disobedience. It is Thursday night, Shea Theater, 7 p.m. The Montague Town Band will open up the evening. There'll be a Q&A with the director at the end. Thank you so much, Sam. You're welcome. No nukes.
0: we're for it Wednesday on the Fabulous 413 we're getting up close with a whale of an exhibit opening at the UMass Contemporary Arts Museum that brings arts and science folks together through new work and items in the university's collection. Interim Director Amanda Herman talks with us about uh, artist Courtney Leonard and her massively immersive Breach Logbook 24, Staccato.
1: And we'll take a look at Black History in the Valley and how you too can get involved not just in learning about it but in helping preserve and discover it with Professor Usman Power-Grain of Clark University, plus word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster bends over backwards to show us the flexibility of pronouns. I'm Monty Balmonti. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll
0: see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.